a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. We are coming up to Remembrance Day, and I've got a number of guests lined up to talk about service and sacrifice. We are going to talk about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories, the people, and impacts of service. I've also brought along a co-host for this series. I've got retired Sergeant Ben Click here. Ben spent 20 years in the Canadian Army, much of it behind a rifle. Now he teaches mental management and marksmanship to military, law enforcement, and civilians. He is also the owner of Sierra 64 Riflecraft and had two previous appearances on this show, uh, episode 16 from the first season, and was a part of the first Remembrance Day series we did uh, in 2022. So our guest for today is Sean Taylor. Sean began his career in 1983 as an infantryman with the Canadian Forces, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and later retired from Tier 1 SOF Unit Joint Task Force 2 at the rank of warrant officer. Since then, Sean's career path has included uh, being a use of force instructor at the Ontario Police College. He's been a private instructor or a private international security consultant, ultra endurance racer, high performance race coach, author and podcaster. And then two that kind of seem to break the mold maybe a little bit, uh, computer systems engineering instructor and coffee shop owner. So yeah, you're all over the place there. So uh, welcome, Ben and Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to be here as always, man. Um, maybe before we jump right into like talking about uh, your your past and stuff, coffee shop owner, podcaster, author, like you, you're kind of you got a lot of talents here. <laughs> <laughs> How, how's all that stuff going? How do you run all this in a day? Well, I'm not sure I'm talented, but I do have a certain velocity. So, yes. <laughs> uh, and that was taught to me in the military, uh, by the way. Uh, but before I jump into it, I, I do want to say this. Thanks for having me, of course, but also to Ben. Uh, not only thanks for your service, but thanks for cracking it out of the park in, in the series of uh, being part of it. Uh, I, I fully respect that. Uh, so to your question, um, the things that I've done in my life, the various careers, I guess I've had seven or eight uh, different uh, unique trajectories uh, as career uh, pathways. Uh, they are sometimes planned and they are sometimes happenstance. Uh, I can think of at least half of them that that was never my intention to get into a particular career. It just kind of happened, like life happens. And <laughs> yeah. when, it, when it comes at you sideways, you either embrace it or you ignore it. And, and I'm a guy who likes to embrace. So that's how I found myself uh, all over the ice. <laughs> awesome stuff. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's start at the beginning where we usually kind of go to. Um, tell us about you growing up, you know, where you're from and, and how you were as a kid. Well, I was a handful as a kid. I'll say that right <laughs> up. And I still am. <laughs> yeah. To say if it's based on anything like you are now, like you're definitely high energy. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a handful as a kid. And uh so I I was uh, born in 1963. I was born in England. I grew up uh, for 10 years in England and then we emigrated as a family to Canada in a place called Grand Cache, Alberta. And uh, that's where I spent uh, my uh teenagers, I suppose. 
and uh, graduated from high school, barely squeaked through. I mean, barely graduated. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, after Grand Cash uh, was done, I was then uh, waiting to get into the military. Uh, so to that point, uh, I'm sure the topic will come up. Um, you know, why the military or why was I thinking about the military or when did I start thinking about that? Yeah. Well, apparently my mom says that uh, when I was five years old, I was talking about how I wanted to be a soldier. And, uh, you know, I don't remember when I was five. I barely remember yesterday. But uh, <laughs> by all accounts, I, I was just that kid who either knew what he wanted to be or had made a poor decision and, and stuck to it and just thought, I want to be a soldier. Either way, that was what I thought throughout my uh, childhood. And uh, to that point, it uh, almost obligated me to join the uh, Army Cadet Corps, uh, actually combat engineer, uh, as a young uh, cadet uh, at the moment that I could uh, join. And uh, that uh, cadet path kind of set me up to the military. You know, one of the uh, formative uh, pieces within my childhood uh, as a teenage uh, kid was uh, spending six weeks at uh, Vernon Army Cadet Camp. Oh, okay. And uh, I mean, you know, it's it's not like you're not learning to be an assassin. You're learning how to polish boots, march, march around on a parade square, along with a whole pile of other things. And uh, I got to say that I liked all of it, man. Mm -hmm. I, I like learning how to march. I like learning how to polish boots. I like learning how to, um, you know, look to the horizon and, and think, I wonder what's beyond there. That's what the cadets taught me. Uh, so uh, by the time I was finished high school, I was already primed to uh, enter into the military, as it were. Yeah. And you, so you really thrived with structure and having like a, you know, a purpose every day when you get up, you know, like I got to do these things. That, that's what kind of drove you? Well, that's a great question. Insightful question, by the way. So uh, that isn't what drove me. In fact, uh, I would argue that I'm quite the opposite. Structure is okay for me, but I actually work better in non-structured environments. So if you let me choose between insane chaos or yawnerific structure, <laughs> come join me in the chaos. Yeah. That's what I love. Uh, that, that has always been appealing to me, and that will always be appealing to me. And so um, I think maybe if I can play with what your question was, and, and the spirit of your question was, I think, correct. Uh, when I was younger, I needed structure because I had none. Um, and uh, so that, that initial structure kind of taught me how to, as I like to think of it, play the game. Not the game of like uh, getting one over on someone, but the game of life that I, I didn't understand at the time. My, my dad wasn't very involved with me. Uh, my mom uh, was, you know, part of, uh, of my life, of course, but again, uh, not, not fully invested in uh, me as a kid, as it were, teaching me things, passing on lessons, uh, helping to guide me. I was a bit of a wild kid, you know. Um, I, because I wasn't in structure, I liked unstructured life. And so that would have me skipping school mm. and going and hunting rabbit or skipping school and going fishing. And I hunted and fished nearly every day of the year, all through the year, all through high school. And if I wasn't skipping school, then I'd, I'd do it right after school. So it would not be uncommon for me to get back from school, grab my Ruger 10-22, my 22 caliber, throw it over my shoulder and walk out with a can of baked beans 
and and uh, and some matches in in the middle of Grand Cash winter, like minus twenty, minus thirty. Yeah, uh, heading out the door when it's dark, and coming back like by the end of the night, and maybe I'd have some rabbits, and maybe I wouldn't. But uh, that's kind of how I raised myself, as it were. Can you talk a bit about the the family dynamic, though? So you're saying your dad wasn't involved, like he was he around or and just yeah. not involved in like your particular uh, activities, like maybe didn't know what it was or just not interested. Or that's yeah, a great question, and uh, I I'm happy to answer it because hopefully it will help someone out there who is listening to this to understand that first of all, my 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 uh, childhood or my backstory isn't that notably tragic that there's anything in it that I feel someone can uh, sit up and be um, be encouraged by my backstory. But I'll give it to you and, and mm. uh, the listening audience, and they can pull out uh, the details that they want to. So uh, as a kid, uh, as I said, uh, born in England, uh, my dad was a coal miner and uh, didn't make very much money at all. Uh, my mom was just, uh, she was a housewife and, and didn't work. So uh, where we were born, uh, just outside of a place called Barnsley, we, we lived in a place called Carlton, which was directly across from a colliery or directly across from a, a coal mine. And so, I mean, it's going to sound crazy, but we were so broke that my dad used to send me across over to like hop the fence into the uh, coal mine to steal coal, to bring it back to the family house, yeah. to heat it. And so, uh, you know, that's not a great life lesson, but that's kind of how I was raised. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, we were broke. And, uh, you know, I've used this example in the past to, to, to make the point that, uh, you know, a, a really big Christmas uh, for me one year was I got a pomegranate for Christmas. Uh, that was it. Nothing else. I mean, no toys, no nothing. That's just we were broke. We just didn't live that life. So when I got this pomegranate, like I made that pomegranate last as long as I could. I peeled off just a quarter of the outer surface, used one of my mom's bobby pins. That's a term that's used uh, from back in the day. Uh, ladies would use bobby pins to hold up their hair in a certain style. Well, I took a bobby pin, I unfolded it, and I just pick out three or four of those pomegranate seeds. That would be my day. And so I, I, learned, the, uh, I learned the value of a dollar. I learned the value of resources. I learned the value of uh, uh, finding happiness uh, where... It's not uh, so evident or it's not being handed to you on a silver platter. Yeah. I, I had to figure out my way as a, as a kid who was not raised uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth. And so um, I had a brother. His name uh, was Lee. Uh, when we moved to Canada, uh, we had a, a really wild British accent. We're in, in Yorkshire. It's really quite guttural. <laughs> so it'd be along the lines of, E by Gumlat. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, who understands that, right? So we showed up as kids in uh, Grand Cash in uh, kind of grade six sort of thing. And uh, man, I took some ass beatings. Uh, I, I got yeah. worked on uh, because uh, I had a wild uh, Yorkshire accent. And so kind of from that point forward, um, uh, the kids in, in school uh, would pick on me, pick on my brother. And, and we didn't have any skills. I mean, uh, I didn't know how to scrap. And so I got some whoopings and uh, it wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, some bullies to chase me down the uh, back alley, throwing rocks at me and calling me all sorts of uh, wild British uh, slurs. And uh, that's just, that was my life, man. Uh. And so uh, it was, it was a bit of a rough uh, upbringing. And so I was, because I didn't have any structure because my, 
I mean, my dad never saw a soccer game that I ever played in my life, and I played freaking soccer constantly. Uh, my mom uh, didn't uh, uh, connect with that at all. So generally speaking, I was a wild kid. But then when it came to the bullying aspect, um, my, my brother, uh, he was uh, just a year and a half younger than I was. Uh, he committed suicide because of all of the bullying that we were getting. He couldn't figure out a way, uh, I guess. And, and I didn't know that he was, uh, you know, in, in that uh, position. And so uh, when, he, um, when he died, um, that sort of changed my worldview on things because now I was the only kid in the house and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't supported previous to that. Uh, my parents, of course, were uh, extremely distraught and, and as you can imagine, uh, even more distracted from my tiny little needs. So, you know, that was me grabbing my 22 cal and heading out the door and going hunting. So that kind of, you know, around grade 10-ish, my marks started hammering in uh, my my ability to process the world around me. I mean, I wasn't old enough to figure any of these things out. So I just didn't really figure much out until I joined the army. And so uh, my my childhood, though rough-ish, um, actually taught me a lot, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, it's only upon reflection. I think we can all agree. We're all old enough now that, uh, with enough skin in the game, you can look backwards and, and realize that there's lessons all through life and, and, and you've got to hit a certain age or a certain maturity, certain wisdom, a certain ability to internally reflect, to see not like the goodness in everything, but learn the lessons in everything. I hope yes. that makes sense. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that, um, Man, that's that's a hard thing to find in people nowadays. Where it's it's looking back on all these, uh, whether you call them negative experiences or just experiences in general, and like you said, you can take you know uh, can be a positive or a negative, or you're just taking the the what you're learning from it. It's hard to find people that look back and say like, "This shaped me," but I'm not going to let it define me. I guess. And in at least in a negative way, um, you want to take the lessons learned from it and make yourself better, right? You, you don't want to emulate the bad. You want to do better for your kids, uh, whatever that might be. So, I mean, it's a unique experience talking about your family. Um, I don't think it, I think one of the worst things people can do is compare themselves to another person. Just as too many factors in your, your, your past. And there's so, you know, family dynamics and whatever else it might be to say like, well, I'm, I'm more victimized than you or whatever it might be. Um, The big thing is like looking forward and and learning what you can from everything that occurred. So, man, but thanks for uh, sharing that with us because, you know, I'm sure it will help somebody. I'm sure somebody is listening that has similar experiences and that's going to mean a whole lot to them, right? And, And to know that, you can kind of come through those things and, and make something good. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, the, uh, the aspect that I'd like to focus on is, uh, and, and you, you raise an extremely important point, is that comparative nature of humans where someone starts telling you their backstory and you automatically inject in your mind like, yeah, well, I did more burpees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, my three siblings were lost on the Titanic, whatever. You know, we all, as humans, we're comparative. And that comparison, I think, is natural. 
but it's when it uh, it boils over into full blown competitiveness. So comparison and competitiveness while you're communicating with someone to you know try to beat them through trauma. My trauma was worse than your trauma. I mean, I, I think I've probably been guilty of it in the past, and I suspect every human has. But I think the important thing, at least for me, is when I recognized that that was my young ways or, or how I used to deal with these kind of things, once I realized it, like I had to freaking fix it. Yeah, I had to get on with the program of improving. And so now it's not a competition. It's just a comparison. And so my point is that when someone is in front of me, in fact, we were just having this conversation over on the collective podcast. We had Sarah McMahon, who is a uh, Olympian and a long uh, time uh, mixed martial artist, quite well known in the UFC and Bellator and et cetera. And so um, amazing to speak with her today, by the way. But as she was telling her story from her childhood, and, and I don't want to get too deeply into it because it might be a bit of a distraction, but she came up hard, man. She came up like in the mud, in the trenches, as it were. Her Both of her parents were drug addicts. Her childhood, she was surrounded by drug addicts. And that was her life, and it wasn't great as she described it. I don't, you know, want to build on that too much. But at some point, she decided she had to get out. Yeah. So she had to identify her exit strategy. And for her, it was, I'm going to go to college. That's the only way I can see me escaping from this path. And so she chose a trajectory. She didn't know if it would be successful or not. But that trajectory, that action, that pulling the trigger of moving forward is what set her up to become an amazing athlete, uh, a, 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 an Olympian wrestler, which, by the way, when she uh, started off, was extremely uncommon for a female to want to scrap in the UFC. In <laughs> yeah. fact, she was one of the ladies that Dana White said, we'll never have ladies on the UFC. This is a man's sport. That, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing Dana White. And here we are, you know. Yeah. Many years later, and due to the likes of Sarah McMahon, we now have a massive representation by uh, that other part of the species called the female. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'll just point out real quick is I think it's the uh, when a person has agency over their own life. That is super important. And this is a conversation I've had with people. Um, I had a guy on the show from Ghana and talking about some of the issues over in Africa. Uh, I had someone on talking about um, someone, one of the inspectors from one of the uh, Australian police services talking about drug addiction out there uh, and then talking to fellow Americans and Canadians. And it always comes down to a person taking control of their own life. No matter what's happened in the past, at some point you have to be like, okay, I'm in control of my destiny and I have to step up, kind of push forward and choose my path you sit back and play like I'm I'm a victim of all these things then you'll always be that you you don't have control of your own life so other people can kind of dictate what it looks like to some degree so yeah very important point i i agree the it's it's important for someone to gain agency in their life i mean it's critical that they not just gain agency but they just take a freaking second to reflect on that's what they're doing Yes. I mean, it's one thing to do, but it's an entirely different thing to get in front of the action and think intentionally, I'm going to gain agency starting now. So you can either do it like unconsciously, 
or you can do it consciously. And consciously to me is way more powerful or way more important as the initiating trigger to gain agency in your life. But to carry on with that, once you've got agency, I feel you then have to start yardsticking against those around you, contextualizing against those around you. Because gaining agency is one thing, but it can turn into a slippery slope where you start patting yourself on the back. Like, look at me go, I have agency. I'm in control of my life. I'm doing so well. But are you? Yeah. But through your sticking, through context, through looking at uh, people around you who you respect or who um, you admire, whatever words you want to use to uh, yardstick against someone who's doing life better. That's what I regularly do. I, I constant, it's not that I constantly think I'm an underperformer, but I do think of myself as an underperformer more frequently than I think most people would believe because I'm contextualizing my life against people who I feel are living amazing lives. And I think that's so important that we have to understand our own definitions of what awesome means to us. Yeah. Did you have, as you're growing up and then you're kind of coming up to the military, uh, did you have anyone like that? Or did you have anyone that you kind of aspired to be like, whether it's even on TV or in the family, anything? No, not, not prior to the military. I showed up to the military like as a skinny underperforming kid. I thought I was dumb. I weighed 135 pounds. I didn't think I had much to offer. I was just going to test myself because I thought I was a soldier kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I literally was a blank slate. I had no, I had no body that uh, inspired me. Mm. But the moment that I joined the military, presto changeo, there was several hundred people in front of me to inspire uh, me. And so um, it wasn't too long in my military career. In fact, uh, you know, there was, there was uh, random inspirers. Uh, but the first guy, I mean, the first guy who really stood out to me as uh, so large and in charge that I wanted to be him was a guy by the name of Ken Murphy. Oh, yeah. uh, when I got posted into Two Commando in 1985, he'd been there uh, just prior to me. And uh, as it turns out, when I uh, got uh, issued my room in the Two Commando shacks, I was only two doors down from Ken Murphy. Now, anyone who knows Ken Murphy right now, is, is thinking he's the man. He's a legend. That guy's so legit. Ken Murphy was large and in charge for me when I showed up because I'd, I'd done a few things, but not that much. But I recognized not just a guy who had done a lot of things. What I did recognize was a guy who had something that I wanted, something inside of him that I felt I needed. And, and I didn't know what that was. So the moment that I... Uh, recognized that he's the guy that I'm going to start emulating. I didn't even know what I was emulating, Yeah, but it was just a vibe, a feeling, recognition of the moment that he's the guy. It's kind of like charisma. It was charisma. It was, um, you know, it was his quiet confidence, his calmness, his ability to, when you stood next to him and if things were going a little bit sideways, I always respected his calmness in the moment. But I think more to the point, it was just, as I like to call it, he was just cool. Yeah. And I, that's how I run my life nowadays. And that's how I've been running my life for a long time is if someone's cool, I'm good with them. And if you're not cool, I'm not good with you. So you got to be cool. And cool to me has many levels. 
But at the very, very bare bones level of that guy's cool, that's enough for me. Yeah. But if they're mega cool, oh, come on. Now, now you're, now I'm hoping you can mentor me, you know? Can you take us through kind of, so you, you applied in 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does, what does the application process and, and stuff look like back then? And, and what did you tell your parents how they kind of received things? That's a good question. So, uh, 83, I just got out of high school. Uh, we were, as I said, living in Grand Cash, but, uh, my parents decided to uh, leave Grand Cash in 82 because the, uh, if, if you recall, uh, the interest rates had gone sky high. Yeah. And uh, Grand Cash as a coal mining town was starting to be in a bit of a slump. And so people were starting to move out. My dad had given, been given a job offer in Nanaimo to open up a, a new mine uh, out on the island. And so uh, they said, we're going to move. And I said, that's cool. I'll, I'll figure things out between... Uh, end of high school and joining the military. So what did I do? I jumped on my motorbike that I just bought and, and you know, I headed off and worked at a Boston pizza up in Fort McMurray. And how did that happen? And my point earlier, like I, I just, I just let the world unfold in front of me and how that unfolded was, if you can imagine there was a time when there wasn't an internet, I got a phone call from uh, my high school buddy and he said, Hey, Sean, I'm, uh, I've got a part-time job up in Fort Mac in a Boston pizza, and I need some help. Can you come up and help me? And I said, how long do you need me to help you? And he said, just a few days. Well, it turned into a month. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, a month later, I'm, I'm working in a Boston pizza making pizzas and wondering, how did I even get here? And so uh, <laughs> from, from that point, um, I started uh, kind of almost marking time until I joined the military. And I marked time uh, for, for about a six-month period. And then I started being concerned, like, man, I don't know if the military is going to accept me. Uh, I'm not getting any word back from them. I better come up with a plan B. And so uh, I threw my name into the hat at a place called Malaspina College on Vancouver Island. It's in Nanaimo. And uh, they were just about to kick off the first course in Canada called Forestry Resource Technology. And uh, apparently it was hard to get into. And so uh, I thought, there's no way they'll accept me because I'm a dumb kid. But I wrote the entrance exam and I thought, oh, that wasn't that hard. I must have screwed something up. And then mm-hmm. I got accepted by uh, the school. But I got accepted on the day that I got accepted to the military. So I had two letters in my hand on the same day. I mean, it's like a movie. but yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And so I've got these two letters and, and I'm sitting on the, the front step and, and I've got both of them open. I've read both of them. I realized that I have been accepted. My dad walked out and said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm just thinking about these two letters. And he said, well, what are they? Because he didn't know my plans really. Uh, and, and I said, well, this is for the military and this is for college. And uh, he said, well, what are you going to choose? And, uh, and I said, I don't know. What do you think? And this was a rare moment between me and my dad where we're interacting and I was like asking for his advice okay. and he was going to provide it. And what he said to me, these are words to the wise, certainly words to a young wise crowd. He said, um, listen, when you're an old man, you can always go back to school. But as a young guy, you should go to the military because when you're old, you won't be able to. So if you're in your rocking chair, son, at 65, looking back and thinking about all the things you should have done but didn't do, don't be that guy. Go do. And so I did. 
I, I accepted the military and uh, presto changeo, a couple of months later, uh, I was accepted into a program. Now, here's the really interesting part. Just so happened that that year in 83, military started a new program called YTEP. And it was the something like Youth Training Employment Program or something right. like that. Yep. Is that right, Ben? Same, same. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That's that's super cool. So YTEP was being thrown out there as kind of like uh, it was being pitched as uh, the opportunity for the government or the military to provide uh, opportunities to people who were struggling to find employment, which I didn't think was me. I, I didn't want to be labeled as maybe YTEP, whatever that meant at the time. All I wanted to be labeled was a guy who's going to go kick some ass and see if it works out. Hmm. And so the fascinating thing about YTEP was. Um, you skipped going to Cornwallis, which was out on the East Coast, and you went directly to battle school. So my day one of the military was uh, getting off a bus in Camp Wainwright in, in the nighttime and uh, with my long, greasy hair. And uh, within two steps, there was already a, a master corporal in the PPCLI, like staring me right in the eyes, spitting on, spitting on me as he barked at me about... <laughs> How, what he was going to do with my eye socket, which I won't repeat. <laughs> <quite rude. laughs> so, um, you know, that was that was day one uh, with long hair, uh, which then turned into six months of uh, infantry battle school at uh, Camp Wainwright. So I kind of skipped the uh, polishing, uh, polishing your T-shirt, socks and boots out in Cornwallis. I went directly to hard charging on day one in uh, Wainwright uh, infantry battle school. Wow. Was that similar for you, Ben? No, no. What what um, what Sean's describing is uh, was something they tried at the time. Um, typically, for those listening, somebody goes to Cornwallis, or now the same training is held in Saint Jean, Quebec. But it's a the first twelve or thirteen weeks, typically in the military, are universal service subjects. So whether you're an Air Force clerk or a Navy mechanic or a combat engineer. You go through this common training. You learn to do first aid. You learn to march like a soldier. You learn to rank structure. You learn things that are common to everybody in in all the military, all three four services now. Um, but what they were trying, what Sean went through, was definitely a deep end of the pool thing. Where like, man, you were you skipped over the uh, the gentle entry and you went right into uh, an extended version of battle school. See, we, we would have covered the same subjects. But uh, the manner that it was taught was probably a, a short, sharp shock for for those. And I'd, I'm going to guess that uh, they went back to the, the normal way of doing things by the time I went through in, in 85. It was under the YTEP program. And, and the only reason I did that was because I could get in two months faster. And when you're 18, two months is an unacceptably long, unimaginable period of time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and it, all it was was a one-year contract. Um, and that was the only difference. But uh, for Sean, short, sharp shock and Wayne rate for me, I had the more gentle entry of doing the, the common training. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which one was better. I'm not sure um, which one, you know, uh, turns out the best soldier, as it were. But, as you know, I'm looking at the comparisons right now uh, between Ben and I, and I see no difference, as it were. You know, the program that he went through created an awesome dude. The program that I went through created a maybe less than awesome dude, but at least we're kind of in the same circles of awesomeness as it were. So uh, I think that uh, there's many ways to skin a cat as the old saying goes. 
but uh, certainly to Ben's point, those uh, first few weeks and months were pretty spicy at Camp Wainwright. <laughs> were you there? Did you land there in the winter or the summer? I don't think. No, I uh, hit, there, hit there in the summer. And mm-hmm. uh, so early part of the summer, which is uh, another uh, fascinating point about uh, day one at uh, Camp Wainwright in the summer, uh, we were living in Quonset huts, uh, which uh, were old steel kind of World War II uh, buildings that uh, do one of two things. In summer, bake your brain, or in winter, freeze your brain. You choose. <laughs> they, they were not deluxe accommodations. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a bunk bed uh, routine. So me and my bunkie, uh, you know, um, that that's just the way it was. It was four guys in a very small space living in two bunks and uh, and uh, watching our worlds get torn apart every single day by some very highly motivated uh, senior NCOs. Can you kind of run us through, like you uh, Ben saying, you get thrown in the deep end. Um, what's it like when you you're doing this training? Because so you're skipping basic training and then the soldier qualification, right? And then it's battle schools after. Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly answer this. Is oh, that I don't think he skipped. He just had the same stuff just being taught by the infantry okay. NCOs. Okay. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, that is correct. Right from the yeah. get-go, uh, day one was with uh, all of our instructors were from the PPCLI. And uh, they they were intent. <laughs> here's, a, here's a funny little side note, historically speaking. Uh, when the YTEP program came online, it was not appreciated by the regular military. Uh, more to the point, I'll, I'll put a very fine uh, edge on it. It was uh, an opportunity for the PPCLI senior NCOs to make sure that nobody passed that program, as it were. <laughs> 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 because it was not appreciated at the time. And I'm not saying that uh, they were trying to destroy the program or they were uh, uh, mean-spiritedly trying to... Uh, 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 force every candidate on the program to fail, but it was no easy go. Yeah, there, there were there were people there that were motivated at the time to make sure that YTEP did not proceed any further than uh, that initial onset. There's um right now and you know, a little bit of a sidebar, but I guess related. When you look at the RCMP and they uh, have started a a hiring process uh, where you can go directly into federal positions, so you don't have to go do the frontline work, you can go straight into um, these uh, different type of jobs, but you skip all that, you know, the first 18 months, two years uh, at minimum, where you're out there just slagging calls and doing the shift work and everything. And um, some of the stuff I see online, like some of the debates are just kind of what you're saying, like, you know, why, why did we have to go through, you know, all the training at depot and you know, what are they, you're going to get some nice accommodations in Ottawa and just go straight into a nice desk job and whatever it might be. So, you know, that always, it's just like everything goes in uh, cycles. Everything comes around, just the time, times and whatever's going on. Uh, someone brings some program back or some version of it. So yeah, I kind of, kind of get what you're saying there. So, uh, yeah, no, like when you're in the training, um, how was it for you? So when you're going through this and you know, what are you kind of thinking? Is it like, oh man, what have I got myself into? Is it I've, like, maybe I'm, did you ever doubt yourself when you started this? Well, that is one of my shortcomings is I do love a good challenge. And even when it's all, all kinds of crazy, 
I just stick with it. Like, I mm-hmm. love a good challenge, man. And so, like, maybe I didn't belong there. Who knows? I don't know. But I was there and I was going to try to freaking smash. I was going to try to do my best. And so the interesting thing for me, when, I, as I said, when I showed up, I was 135 pounds and I thought I was dumb. That's because teachers got me thinking I was dumb. Teachers in high school, because school bored me, man. Yeah. School did not work for me. The, the things that, like, they were boring themselves, never mind boring me. And so that environment just did not work for me. I thought a different way. I learned a different way. I, the system did not work for me. And so through that process as, you know, my, the, the complications of my life and the fact that I thought I was kind of dumb, my marks started hammering in. And again, I barely squeaked through grade 12. So when I showed up to uh, day one of YTEP or day one of uh, infantry battle school, I was skinny and dumb in my mind. But guess what? The army put challenges in front of me. I started learning how to solve those challenges. And then through that process, contextualizing myself against the guys around me who were all good guys, but I started to learn that I'm not that dumb, I'm, or at least I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. And so that not a sense of confidence of, wow, I've got a brain, but a sense of, ooh, I wonder where this can take me. I started becoming a little bit more exploratory. I started kind of reading more PAMs or, or manuals, training manuals. I started like asking questions that just weren't simple questions. They were questions that were deeper or fascinated me or, or they were questions that worked for my brain, but maybe not for everyone else's brain. Now, that got me in a lot of trouble for sure. Like Absolutely. I, I was a champion push-up. Guy. I was a champion chin-up guy. I was a champion peel potatoes guy. I got myself in a lot of trouble in the early uh, phase, my, the, certainly the first year of my military. That's a great way of describing punishment. You got really good at it. But I got really good. I, at it. I, it strikes a nerve, man, because did you find that like um, conventional big green army training promotes mediocrity? Like they expect you to meet minimum standard. And if you stick your head up and, and kind of ask those difficult in-depth questions that are sincere, you find that wasn't really encouraged? It, not in my time. Not in not in yeah. '83. It wasn't encouraged. In fact, it was a it it was so discouraged that it was simply the opportunity to receive more punishment. Thank and you. so the, the questions that that interested me, or the things that I thought I could do better by asking the question, was simply the opportunity for me to get better at doing push-ups for sure. Now my problem. Uh, early in my military career was I didn't realize how much I liked to think out of the box. And so the standard issue military delivery of sequence of events or this this is how you polish a boot and we're going to be talking about that for the next three weeks, that didn't interest me. I understand it's a boot, it's polished. I polish it, it gets shiny. What's the next thing? Mm-hmm. I didn't need to I didn't need to revisit simple tasks. I could quickly ascertain what the requirement was, and then I would be instantly considering what the next move was. How could I do it deeper, bigger, better, faster? So my out-of-the-box thinking got me in trouble because I would complete a simple task and then get on with trying to figure out a more complex way to do it so that I could learn how to do it wrong. 
I started, I didn't realize it at the time, but the standard military as it was being delivered to me wasn't enough. I needed out-of-the-box thinking, but I also needed to apply out-of-the-box thinking and create a failure for me to learn the lesson so that I could then feed it back into my OODA loop and then start building off of that. Yeah. And and I imagine it's the same for you and me as if failure was every something to be avoided at all costs. Where later on I learned that we should be embracing failure. You know, but at the time, like failure was to be avoided. It, it, you know, even the hint of failure was to be avoided. And I get it, you're testing a bunch of young people like to see if, you know, if they can meet a basic standard. So I get it maybe in basic training, but I but I love the uh I love the the culture of of approaching and and experiencing failure and 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 embracing that. Um, and it's did you find that later on that was a thing, but not at the the beginning? Well, I I am the same as you, Ben. I encourage everyone to pursue failure. Yeah. To me, the the real win is failing. Winning is 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 not that cool, in my opinion. Failing is cool. And so uh, I've I've literally set myself up for failure in order to learn the lesson in the failure so that I can do it better on the second iteration. Yeah, uh, I think it's super important. Uh, failure is a gift; it is not a curse. Absolutely. Like if it doesn't suck, we're not doing it <laughs> because you know. Like I always equated to going to the range. There's there's some people, and God bless you if you're listening, but uh, come out to the range shoot their scoped rifle from the same bench, same targets, and they hit them and there's lots of steel ping in and it's all high fives and ass grabs. But that's as much as they do. And they're having a ball. So, you know, super. But they don't want, they're practicing what they're already good at. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I talk about the one that you talked about being, feeling, I can't remember the term you use, substandard or, or below average or whatever. Have you ever talked, thought about the the one-third deal where you should be uncomfortable one-third of the time uh comfortable one-third of the time and really pleased with your performance one-third of the time oh wow my, come across my, my ratios are way off because like i don't have any thirds uh i'm uncomfortable about four-fifths of the time i okay. have success about one-twentieth of the time and then the rest of the math <laughs> yeah yeah i know i get but would you agree that that's something that that hunger is what oh, yeah. drove you to your successes? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, back to basic training and that structure that it provided for me that I desperately needed. Once I had the structure, then I had to learn how to play within the structure. Mm, yeah. So the, the rule set, as it were, for lack of a better term, once I understood these things and I could start playing outside of the box and getting myself in trouble and failing and all of that good stuff. But certainly through my first year in the military, I learned how to be a better version of Sean. And so that better version, whatever that means to anyone out there, was enough for young Sean to think, oh, I'm not dumb. I'm not that skinny anymore. And I see a way to play this game, for lack of a better term, in a way that is appealing to me, in a way that challenges me, in the way that excites me, in the way that makes me want to do more in this game. And Ben, you'd asked uh, or mentioned, you know, basic training and how that worked for me. Uh, well, I had to create my own solutions to make basic training work for me. Whereas the uh, instructional system at the time 
I don't think was granular enough or sophisticated enough or nuanced enough to be able to train everyone, ideally, boutiquely, perfectly to draw the best out of each unique individual in there. I would say now, at least I hope now, there is more uh, clear understanding of uh, the teaching models or the informational passage models that are, uh, you know, current today that Mm -hmm. are far better, I feel, at passing on information to a wide demographic uh, that's all co-located in one location. Yeah, I I think like basic training, uh, all those, you know, any kind of entry course, it's always going to be like a very generalized thing. But I, yeah, I wonder how they would kind of tune it to fit like multiple learning styles, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want to, I'm not throwing the eighties under the bus for anyone out there. I'm not saying that, you know, battle school sucked. Uh, I mean, parts of it sucked and, and you'll understand that if you've ever spent six months in camp Wayne, right. Doing basic training. (laughs) Uh, so, um, there are parts that were hard, but I don't want to shine a spotlight on how hard it was or how dysfunctional it was. I'm not saying those things. All I'm saying is it could have been done better. Yeah. And I would hope that it's being done better now. And to contextualize what I'm saying, go back to the 40s when people were prepping for World War II. Do you think that there was these well-developed educational models where it could uh, touch on everybody in front of you to include the outliers who are on a spectrum of learning dysfunction? I mean, in the 40s, there were no models to do that. So if there was none in the 80s, we'll say, as a theoretical model. Uh, then big deal. Yeah, the product was still created. the The soldier was still the soldier, and and though they may not have been as amazing coming out of basic training as perhaps they are now, certainly it was more than enough to create what was required at the time in context of the '40s, for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think you're right. That's that's very wise word, Sean. It's not just that we did the best with what we could, but I I, I think the army. Then and now, yeah, I, I like the the Buddhist idea of right action, which for me boils down to they're doing the best they can with the information and resources they have and who they are, you know. Um, and I can tell you that, like I've recently had a little bit last year too, a lot of contact with with the basic sniper force and the platoons and the battalions here. And I think you're right; is that they're turning out. I, I would say the average guy coming out of battle school is better prepared than I was in, in 1985. Mm. Um, there's, there's plus and minuses, of course, but, uh, and it's all human, but, but I, I think they're, they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, agreed. So if we could kind of move into, so you've you done your training, uh, and then what's, what's happening in the world around you? Is this, uh, are, you know, are geopolitics kind of having any influence on your thinking or where you think you might be going at this time? Well, um, I do want to, uh, identify an important uh, period of time on my basic training not not mm. the actual training per se but an impactful moment i'd i'd be remiss to skip over it's not something that i'm keen to talk about i just don't want to like bypass it and not say that uh, it was uh, impactful so uh, about halfway through basic training or around the third month of uh, infantry battle school with another uh, three months to go uh we were um for the first time going to kind of leave Camp Wayne, right? And go on what was called an adventure training week. 
And so that meant that we were uh, loading into the back of a deuce and a half and driving up to a place called uh, um, uh, And uh, it's up in northern Alberta and uh, kind of remote. And the idea was for a week we were going to live in uh, hoochies or in A-frame uh, tarp uh, sort of uh, uh, rough or austere uh, living. And uh, we're going to learn how to trap rabbits and we're going to learn how to do all of these things that I'd kind of been doing in my childhood anyway. Uh, but it was like a break, almost, for lack of a better term, from the intensity of having your world turn upside down uh, every morning uh, during morning inspection. And so I was comfortable out in the bush, so to me it was almost like a vacation. But at the end of uh, that uh, adventure week, we uh, it was time to depart and head back to Camp Wainwright. And so uh, we all loaded up into the back of a deuce and a half. And uh, at the time, uh, the deuce and a half was overloaded by six to eight guys. And also in the back of the deuce and a half, um, we had a bunch of defensive uh, equipment, uh, uh, steel pickets and axes and shovels and our rucksacks and our rifles and all kinds of things. And uh, we were barreling down a, a dusty old gravel road. And uh, the deuce and a halfs at the time, uh, I mean, the army was pretty broke, I would say. And uh, the tires on this uh, deuce and a half were bald. There was no first aid kit in it. There was no comms in it. It was just basically a shell of a vehicle in a, a overloaded shell, and uh, the the vehicle going down the rat, uh, the gravel road started a fishtail, and it went sideways and then flipped in the air. Mm. We landed on the roof. Uh, it broke all of the wooden uh, hoops on the, on the back of the deuce and a half, um, and uh, the weight of all of our bodies hitting the canvas uh, as, as the truck flipped. Uh, we all stayed on the ground, and the truck did another kind of half flip and kind of when i when i i landed on my back on top of someone we were all laying on the ground splattered all over the place i looked over and i saw the deuce and a half doing bunk 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 right next to my head and and thinking wow i wonder if that's gonna tip over on me yeah and then i heard someone say it's gonna blow run that's that's all i heard so i i stood up like a freaking robot and started running in a direction. And uh, I just ran away from the truck because someone said it's going to blow. And uh, so when I stopped running, I turned around and uh, there was a guy standing right next to me. And he said, wow, what just happened? And uh, his ear was uh, dangling off the side of his head. It was just hanging on by a tiny little uh, piece of skin, his earlobe, as it were. And I said, hang on a sec, come on over here. And I grabbed his ear, put it back on the side of his head. And I said, okay, hang on to this, keep it there. Are you good? And he said, yeah, I think. I said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go stand over there. That's now the triage area. And I'm going to start sending people to you. And, uh, and he said, okay, as he walked away, hanging on to his ear, fully shocked out. Jeez. And so as I look back at the, uh, the, the carnage, um, all of the guys in the back of the deuce and a half were in the hurt locker, broken bones, broken this, internal bleeding, whatever, all kinds of things. And uh, as I walked towards it, I thought, man, I am unprepared for this because in basic training, uh, we hadn't really done uh, any first aid at that point. It's not like we had done any casualty simulations or anything like that. I mean, I, I'm not even sure if we were taught at that point to put a basic sling on, uh, an arm sling. Uh, but I did have the luxury that I was fortunate that when I was in Army Cadets, uh, I joined a provincial first aid team as a kid on an adult team because I wanted to learn how to do things. 
And so um, I just thought, if I'm going to be a soldier, I better get better at some things. Yeah. Uh, and so I, 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 I'd competed in uh, first aid uh, competitions as a kid with other adults. So when I looked at this problem in front of me, I mean, it was freaking me out, but I already had skills to manage it. So, you know, I walked back in and, and waded into the mess. And, and uh, the first guy that I saw uh, who died uh, within about a minute of me uh, getting a hold of him and trying to um, clear all of the, the lungs out of his mouth uh, to start CPR, uh, he died in my, my arms. And I, I looked at him and I thought, oh, my goodness, what is even going on? And so I stood up and I looked at the next guy. And he was the next guy to die. Uh, I worked on him for a little while. And then, um, you know, someone yelled over as I was working on another guy's leg. And I said, hey, Sean, come over here. We got a guy in the back of the deuce and a half. And I ran over there and, you know, started working on him. And, you know, he ended up dying. Uh, and uh, the whole situation sucked, man. Yeah. The, uh, the, the lesson for me in that moment was many. Uh, how uh, disorganized and unprepared. Uh, the institution had been prior to his loading onto the back of that uh, deuce and a half. It also taught me to understand that though I respect my command, I respect the chain of command. That doesn't mean that the chain of command is making the right decisions all the time. So it did teach me to not second guess everything, but it taught me to revisit everything that was uh, given to me as either an order or as a directive or as an idea. I always double-checked it against what I felt was the appropriate thing to do. And are we prepared for this moment? So only halfway through my uh, battle school or basic training, I was put in a situation where I was taught the lesson that uh, irrespective of what institution you're in, it doesn't mean that the institution is perfect, which is what I'd thought up until that point. Really? Okay. I, well, and yeah, I mean, I think that teaches you um, like a, le- a lot of leadership skills, right? You, next time you see something that you're like, even though it's an order or whatever it might be, you have to have a way to communicate like, this is unsafe. This is going to put us all in danger and we need to do something else. So it's, uh, I guess, a little bit of speaking truth to power. Um, and just, you know, how you frame that, because I know uh, from my own experience, you can be truthful to people. Sometimes people think you're abrasive uh, because you're saying something that they don't want to hear necessarily, but it's how you frame it and then how you contextualize it and and pass that message on. So, man, that's a, that's a pretty wild experience to have in the first few months uh, of being there, right? Um, yeah. It's pretty hard. John, John, you remember uh, Kevin Brandner? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. So many, many years later, Kev said something uh, to my son that I wish I had learned uh, when, I, when we were all in commando was Kevin addressed the point that I think Nathan's touching on is that you got to be able to level with people without leveling people. Mm, that's a great statement. Yeah. To be able to, to speak to them in a language that they understand and speak the truth. Um, whether it's somebody you're dealing with on the street or, or your own chain of command. And that's, that's an art. Um, and it's one I wish that, uh, wish that I had learned much earlier. 
Well, it is an art. And to your point, I wish I'd have learned it way sooner than I did because initially my art was finger painting and I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so it got me in a lot of trouble, man. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I was abrasive. I was a handful. And like, if, if someone stepped up on me, it didn't matter what rank it was. If they stepped up on me and gave me the wrong look, they were getting the wrong look back. And, and it's not that I disrespected their rank. I disrespected the man if that man wasn't treating me like a man. Mm-hmm. If you want to treat me like a dog, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite back. And that's just the way I've always been. And so it is a character flaw in me that if you disrespect me, don't expect me to respect you for it. And so uh, conversely to that, um, when, when I have been in positions where I've had to deliver some direct, concise, and to-the-point feedback, sometimes I've been too abrasive. I've been too direct. I've been too clear, maybe a bit too mean-spirited when I was younger. And so the individual on the other end, uh, eventually it took a, a, a person to say, hey, man, you can't talk to me like that just because you're my boss. Mm-hmm. And he was right. And so we all have to learn these lessons, as I feel, as young men or as, as young people. Uh, once we're put into a position of leadership or into a position of communicating with another human, either as a peer or as a subordinate or as a superior, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, at the time, I thought it was important what those uh, those levels were, but now I totally understand that it's not about any of that. It's just about playing it right in the moment. And that takes a freaking long time to figure out. That's an art. Yeah. yeah, in art. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Can you kind of tell us, uh, uh, go back to just talking about you come out of the training, uh, and where does your career kind of progress from there? Mm, yeah, uh, so it didn't progress in the way that I expected. So I got out of basic training again six months, and I got posted to one PPCLI. And so um, we got posted like two days before the men's Christmas dinner. And so... Uh, you know, uh, well, Ben would understand this. Uh, as the new guy on the block, you're getting you're getting your ass whooped <laughs> every time you go around the corner. You don't know what corporal or master corporal is going to jack you up as the new guy because they're going to have a bit of fun with you, and you still don't know how the game's played. And so, I was like, getting posted to battalion on day one was a whirlwind as far as I was concerned. But later that day. Uh, I, I was still trying to figure out which way was up and who was going to bark at me next. And we had to, um, uh, th- it was called the turkey shoot. Uh, so the battalion back then in the 80s, they do a, a turkey shoot at the end of the year, just before the men's Christmas dinner. And so the entire uh, battalion, more correctly, the entire brigade at, at 1PP, uh, we had some indoor ranges, uh, just a 25 meter indoor ranges, I believe it was. And uh, so everyone had to rotate through that indoor range. He got handed an Anschutz uh, 22 cal rifle uh, or a target rifle. And uh, you got told to lay down and crack five rounds down at the target and then uh, step back and, and you would be evaluated. Now, I didn't know how to play the game, like I said. And to this day, if I could go back in a time machine and be on that range in that moment, I'm not sure if I would have played it the same or not. I, I, I like to think that I made the right decision, but if I would have made another decision, my career would have looked completely different. Hmm. So let me explain that. 
So I laid down in the prone and I cracked off five rounds and I put all five on top of each other. And so it looked like kind of a distorted one hole. So they're all touching, of course. But uh, when, we, uh, when we evaluated the targets, the line NCO who uh, was running it uh, um, said that uh, I hadn't shot all five rounds because obviously they couldn't all go in one hole. There must have been some wingers or off the targets. And I thought, nah, not, not really, but I'm not going to argue with him. And so what he did was something that he didn't do for anyone else that I saw on the line uh, while I was there. And he said, you'll reshoot. Hmm. You'll reshoot that because there was some wingers. And I said, yes, I will. And so I laid down in the prone. I cracked them all. And, and they may not have been touching as tightly as uh, they were in that first uh, iteration. But uh, certainly they were all connected to demonstrate that there was five rounds there. And so, and, and of course, he was standing directly over my shoulder, uh, making sure that I wasn't cheating. Uh, and so uh, I stood up and and uh, and he didn't say anything. In fact, I think he was a bit irritated that I replicated <laughs> the uh, shots. Yeah. And uh, and so as it turned out, I was the best shot that day. Uh, and that that's a good thing, I suppose, because I was doing my best. But it was kind of bad because there's this whole other uh, piece of the army called more experienced people who don't like being beaten by a guy who just showed up that morning. Yeah. <laughs> and what I, what I had going for my advantage was, as I said, I owned a Ruger 1022 and I shot it a lot. I was out in the bush a lot. I tracked a lot. I hunted squirrel, anything that moved. I'd shoot at pine cones. I'd shoot at leaves. I'd shoot at pine needles. I'd shoot at trees. I'd shoot at rivers. I'd shoot at everything. I'd walk out there by myself into the bush and shoot and hunt and track. So I'd, I'd probably put more rounds downrange with my 22 cal at that point than most of the people on that line. But I was showing up as a total noob, an unknown, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So by the time I won it that day, now I found myself, this is insane to me, uh, I found myself in the men's Christmas dinner party standing next to the commanding officer with this big goofy french white hat chef's hat on my head with this with the commanding officer with the same big goofy white hat on his head and i'd be carving the turkeys and he'd be handing them out to the men and the entire battalion walked past me i'm serving now now, now, Ben, you understand what was going on in that moment. Right. Can you imagine a worse situation for a day one private as every senior NCO walks by and gives you the stink eye? I was in the <laughs> doghouse. <laughs> <laughs> but what it did, it set me up on the trajectory that um, cemented my career, as it were. So on that day, I was identified as the best shot there. And then the following day, I was pushed over to the 1P PCLI rifle team to shoot. And so I'd been in Wainwright, and uh, in Lickety Split, I was sent straight back up to Wainwright to go and shoot on the 1PP uh, rifle team until we competed at Western Canadians, okay. where we won. And then I got cross-posted over to 3PP, uh, 3PP CLI, because at the time, 3PP was considered 
the best shooting team, uh, I, I believe, in Canada. But certainly within the PPCLI, they were the rifle team. Yeah. So I got seconded to them and uh, shot at nationals in Connaught that year. And then, you know, the rest is history, as it were. All right. Uh, so when you're there, though, is there any talk of like, uh, you, know, you might be going to any kind of deployments? It was it what's happening in the world around you that, um, you know, are you kind of checked into like things happening uh, outside of the shooting competitions? Yeah, so um, I wasn't going to mention it because it's kind of a boring uh, side piece, I think. But mm-hmm. I'd said that, you know, I shot uh, just before men's Christmas dinner and then, you know, lickety split. I was back up in Wainwright uh, laying down in the uh, in the mud and shooting in uh, March or February. Uh, in between those two things, uh, I ended up uh, going over to Norway for a month uh, to be part of a shape uh, uh, deployment. So um, part of the NATO a representation in Norway at the time, the Cold War between uh, Canada and Russia, and uh, well, Russia and everyone. And so um, we went to Norway for a month to represent sort of a Canadian deployment uh, to interact or work with the Norwegian infantry and some Norwegian special forces. Now, that that month was pretty critical to me in my early career as well because it taught me two things: one that uh, uh, there's many ways to skin a cat again. The Norwegians did things differently than the Canadians did. Uh, the uh, I don't want to compare senses of professionalism, but certainly at the time, the Norwegian uh, military was, uh, was basically, um, they weren't pro- we weren't working with professional soldiers as much as the Canadian soldiers who are professional. So by that, I mean, mm-hmm. we were all volunteers, we were all on long contracts. We all knew why we were there. But uh, some of the Norwegians had been, uh, you, you get a choice. You get to go and uh, uh, work uh, for a civilian organization or a civilian agency to somehow serve your country, or you get to go into the military in one of their uh, branches of military and okay. do at least a year-long stint as, uh, as a basic recruit, if you will. And so it's man- it was at the time it was mandatory that every uh, Norwegian of a certain age had to serve their country for at least a year. I would think like because you're over there and you're closer to Russia uh, that you're almost uh, like your whole society is kind of like on a heightened alert that people are uh, maybe more um, geared toward the military life. Maybe they would have been the more professional service uh right and yeah. canadians who haven't been in you know what was korea before the 80s so like yeah it's just kind of surprising that dynamic well well that was the second thing that i learned so i was there as a professional soldier working with for lack of a better term non-professional soldiers if you will i'm not saying that they weren't professional i'm just saying that mm-hmm. uh, you know we'll, we'll call them uh, they are seconded into the military for a year still kind of civilians yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're conscripts. Conscripts yeah. for a year. Uh, that's the right word to use, Ben. Thank you. So um, the the second thing that I learned was, though I considered myself a budding professional soldier working with conscripts, they had a better understanding than I did of the importance of what they were doing. I was still trying to understand what I might face in the future, whereas they'd been living it their entire life. So. After that month or during that month, 
as I got to know the Norwegians better, uh, and and not many of them spoke English, and I certainly didn't speak Norwegian, I got a more of a, a vibe or a sense of the importance of my job and how I was now responsible to not just work on behalf of the Canadian population, but I also now had a responsibility to serve internationally for moments of crisis where if in fact the big Soviet bear crossed that line, then I was going to be a guy who knew where he was going to go in Norway and was going to do the thing that had been taught to do. So it took my almost, uh, I, I almost, almost want to say, took my tiny view of the world, Canada, and gave me a broader worldview of my responsibilities. That's quite remarkable, and it kind of touches a nerve. Um, there's a sense of international responsibility, but I don't think everybody felt it, Sean. Uh, do you? Do you? Was it your experience that the uh, a lot of the military of the '80s didn't take it quite as seriously as as perhaps you did? Because at the time, Cyprus and and going to Germany so you could drink and buy a Porsche was kind of the kind of the two big deployments. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, do you find the rest of the army took it as seriously as you were? Well, uh, here's yeah. To to generally uh, give an answer, I would agree, or, or I would say yes. That's what I found. Now, however, the devil is in the details, as they say. So, my buddies, the guys that I loved on, the guys that I worked next to, my peers, we'll call them, who were like minded. Well, I mean, I, we all thought the same way. We all thought. If that's if that's the enemy, it's time to learn the enemy. And so I spent my spare time studying BMPs and BRDMs and all of the things that were <laughs> Soviet related. And so uh, through that process, like after Norway, I, I got into the books, man. And, and again, I thought I was a dumb kid, so books weren't my, you know, it, it's not like I my norm my normal routine would be to just grab a training manual and start cracking through it. Mm-hmm. That's what I started doing was I started grabbing manuals and started reading them to be better prepared for when I had to go back to Norway and fight the Soviet Union. I mean, I was young, but it yep. made sense to me at the time. And then I got the privilege of being put on uh, my basic reconnaissance patrolman course while I was in 1PP. And uh, the reconnaissance patrolman had a really strong block of training in it that was dedicated completely to the Soviet Union. Their tactics, their strategies, their vehicles, their equipment, how, what the size of a, a section would be, what the size of a platoon would be, and so on and so forth. And so during that recce patrolman course, I loved the challenge. I loved the hardship. I loved the combined effort of work to create a successful outcome. But more than anything, I loved learning things that I thought I would need in the future. Mm. And so it was that course that fueled me for knowledge is power, and I need to be prepared for what is coming our way, as is being told to me by my institution, and I will be prepared. So what I'm hearing is you took responsibility for your own development rather than just waiting for the system to pump you through the sausage machine. I did. And you'd said something earlier, Ben, and it was, I I should have uh, touched on it then because I thought it was a really powerful statement. For me, uh, I, I, there's, there's only two standards. There is meet the standard 
or exceed the standard. That yeah. is it. That's all. There is no below the standard. Mm. So I learned that very early in my career that meeting the standard was just like that. That's mediocrity to me. Yeah. Exceeding the standard, that is the only acceptable path for Sean. Now, I understand that everyone doesn't think that way. I wish everyone did to some degree. But certainly in my world, if you're not meeting the standard, you and I have got a problem because I'm exceeding the standard and please try to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you straight up that that was an inspiration because I, I came to two commando two years after Sean and there, there's a problem going on at the time that the units were sending some of their less desirable, less disciplined soldiers there to try and correct them. But the mm. core of, quality, outstanding soldiers and NCOs are the ones that I looked up to. People like Sean, uh, Brian Morrison, uh, Tony Clark, uh, you know, there's, I could go on and on. There was, those were the quiet, it's funny, they, I thought of them as the quiet professionals. Um, those are the ones I wanted to be like. And those are the ones who come yeah. over to me and be like, hey man, no, like, this is how you pack your rucksack. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it echoes down through the generations, man. So thank you for, for being that standard. The the standards before me were the were the the reasons that I felt the importance right of standards. And and to your point, like you you raised two names who I'm very familiar with, like Big Brian, Brian Morrison, totally quiet professional. And then Tony Clark, you mentioned his name. That's awesome. He was on my Pathfinder course. He was my Pathfinder deck commander. I worked directly as I was Tony's two IC. Uh, second in command. Yep. And so, uh, I mean, those are just two names of many names yep. of the guys that were either my peers, my subordinates, or my superiors that just understood the importance of the job at hand. And, uh, you know, uh, as, as I was saying in the 80s, you know, it was a bit of a rough time with basic training and it was a bit of rough time here and there. None of that matters as long as the standard is being met or. Yeah. Needed, if that makes sense. And do you, do you find that you were attracted to and spent most of your time around those types of people? I did. I did. And, and uh, there's a couple of reasons for that, because uh, that's the kind of stuff that inspires me and it draws out my competitiveness. Not that I want to beat everyone around me. I compete against myself. My biggest, my biggest opponent is me, and I'm always trying to beat me. And when I'm trying to outperform Sean, then it typically... I'm doing pretty well against the people that I'm stacked up around, but my, the, 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 the crew that I banged with the circle of peers that I hung out with the guys that I respected, the guys that I would hang out with after work and, and throw ideas back and forth. These were all larger than life characters who, okay. who helped calibrate me for sure. Well, that's a great way to put it. That's because I talk about the power of the pack, what I learned, but I like the way you say it, it calibrates you. Mm, because yeah. we do we do become who we're around is it like you're, you're the average of the five people you hang around something like that oh dude i was often the weak link of the five people like <laughs> I, I was in i was in people <laughs> for i don't know uh three or four years i got more time than average i think it was three years and and not to be a dick but but i was getting to be pretty competent and, and i consider myself one of the one of the the soldiers who was who was very serious and doing their best and then I went to Pathfinder <laughs> and like, I was a mule, I mean, a follower and assistant on, on, uh, Sean's Pathfinder course. 
but when I finally got to the platoon, man, I was solidly in the bottom third. Yeah. And it, it being around people like that is what, what ups my game and being around the right people. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and it's not just, it's not even just the right people. No, that is a correct statement. I, yeah. I totally agree with it, but it's, it's, I think of it as not just the right people. It's the right people who are sometimes not the right people, but they're pushing me to the freakish heights that I need at the time. And then they become the right people. Yeah. And so, uh, Ben, Ben, um, you know, as he said, he was a mule uh, on maybe on my Pathfinder platoon uh, course. Uh, the year prior, I'd been a mule uh, supporting the Pathfinder course uh, uh, because I was already in Pathfinder platoon at that time. I'd just come off my military freefall parachutist, had time to grab a sandwich and then go out and support on Pathfinder course. And I'll tell you what, man, as a supporter on that course, it's a freaking beatdown. Because you, here's one of the interesting things about guys who care about other guys who are in the hurt locker. On that course, and I, I would put uh, a thousand bucks on the table that Ben ran his program the same way when he's a mule on my uh, Ratfinder course, and that is when I was muling for the course prior, I looked at those guys and I realized how hurting they were. So I'd sidle up next to them with a humongous uh, rucksack on my back and say. Hey man, uh, just just hand me a couple of your uh, PRC seventy seven set batteries. I'll I'll haul them for you. Yeah. Or as I'd be taking extra weight off them uh, where the directing staff couldn't see. Try to sneak them a little Mars bar. Oh yeah. Sneak them a little little bit of food because we're always in the hurt locker for food. And so 100%. one one of the things about uh, being in a um, we'll call it a supporting role as Ben was on my course or as I was on the course prior. These are positions that don't get a lot of limelight. They don't get spotlighted. They don't get attaboy. Who gets the attaboy? The candidates who are going through the hard churn, who are there yeah. at the or or were there at the start. They had the guts to stand on the start line and give it a crack. So they're the guys who deserve the spotlight. But I feel that maybe some of the best lessons I learned was out of the spotlight as a mule on the yep. Pathfinder before mine. Would you agree, Ben? Yeah, 100%. I did three, I did a mule part, at least part of the year for three years, and I learned so much. Um, you know, whether, whether it was like, yeah, our rucksacks at the time had three pockets on the outside, and every time I met up, because they'd cycled mules in and out every 72 hours, everybody, all the students in the course knew that the center pouch of my rucksack was full of protein bars or chocolate bars and it was either jerry shallel or or pat bonneville who just about tore it off back to my rucksack on a on a shore in uh, in nova scotia but because it wasn't under stress because it wasn't under assessment because i wasn't going through the the physical or caloric deprivation that the students were i had a clear head and i was able to see what they were doing and understand what the you know how how the job was actually done and what you know, I got to watch the herd of candidates thin very, very quickly, um, and I, I kind of noticed what the people who passed were like. And it was often, like Sean said, it was guys who were supporting each other, not concerned about themselves. Yeah, and that was one of my first takeaways. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really privileged position that you it were. Is. For, I mean, the the only way that you can learn how to do something well is by observing someone who is doing it well, but with a clear head. Yeah. And, and as a pathfinder on the course, 
<laughs> and come on, you're so sleep deprived. You're so calorically deficient. You're so stressed. You're so frazzled. You're, you're burned out to a degree that by day 50 or 60 or 70, whatever, you're the shell of a man. You're barely functioning. You're functioning to a high standard, but you're barely hanging on by your nails. And so at that, at that point, you don't have the cognitive bandwidth. You don't have the clarity of mind to be able to understand precisely what's going on. Because at that point, all you're doing is wondering how many nails you're going to lose as you hang on to the edge of that cliff just to try to stay in the game one more day. You can't see the fullness of the moment as, as Ben would have on my course or as I would have as a mule on the previous courses. These are opportunities, I would suggest, for anyone out there in the military who's maybe listening to this later when it drops, that if you ever get the opportunity to volunteer on a freaking hard-charging course as support staff, that's the very thing that you should be doing. You should not look at that as a drag or as a bummer or as a yeah. distraction. That's the best Christmas gift you can ever give yourself. Go support with a clear head, watch the suck, learn in the moment, and then figure out how to do it better for yourself the following year. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, you can learn a lot by you know sitting back and... and looking at what's in front of you and, and all the people around you and take those opportunities. Like hundred uh, percent. I agree with that. Um, I do want to just for uh, time's sake, cause I don't pay attention to it. Sorry. Yeah, no, all good. I want to make sure I don't want to just blast through your whole career. So I want to give you some time to talk about a few things um, because I do want to talk about some of the stuff you're involved in after the army. So uh, if we can just move a bit through the career Hundred uh, percent. You you went through two commando. You came across Ben there as well. Yeah, we would have bumped into each other. I mean, not like uh, it's not like we were hanging out clinking uh, beer glasses on a regular basis. When I first noted Ben, uh, I think I might have already said it, I just noticed a, a keen young man who was um, aggressively trying to get better at his job. And so I always made note of someone who was in the game, in the game. And I mean, not like participating, I'm talking about crushing the game. And so if Ben didn't know how to even spell to commando at the time, didn't matter to me. I just got a vibe off him. I just knew that he was going to be a guy who would go places because he was in the game. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we didn't hold hands and watch movies together. But I did make a note of Ben when he showed up, for sure. It's always yeah. cool. And I, I think about this uh, uh, when I have my own recruits or people, new guys to the team that I work on now. And you just see like the drive is there. And they're just taking all the opportunities and they're diving into all the things. That's where I find a lot of the inspiration now as being especially one of the older guys on the job, which I'm not like super old, but uh, definitely older than a lot of the people coming up and, and getting in. So, and sorry, Ben, I didn't mean to cut you off there if you were talking. Not at all. No, you didn't at all. No, and it, it, it's, uh, I think the lesson with what, what John was talking about is be aware that, like, I, I didn't even know that anybody even knew I was alive in Commando. Like, the, the culture at the time was you were an FNG, you were a new guy. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I probably ran my mouth more than, than I remember. And certainly more than I should have, 
but I tried to just kind of shut up and and uh, and watch people who who were like say the scrimmage suit who are in the game, guys who are playing for real, guys who understand that what they what they do matters. Um, so I think it's a, the lesson that I can take from that is to just buckle down, do your job. People will notice. Yeah. Don't worry about the. The, the people who uh, and there's lots of people who will as soon as you stick your head above the crowd as soon as you're anything other than that minimum standard um we'll try and shout you down uh i, I eventually learned i uh, saw so you talk about rifle team uh sean did you ever run around across keith cunningham he was an rcr oh, yeah. okay yeah. yeah so keith is mr metal management mr positivity right <laughs> and um for about two or three years shooting with him he's like oh yeah so, and then one day we were shooting uh, C3 as a target rifle, and we walked back, and I was I was not just pacing with him. My points were, I beat him in a couple. And he started beaking me. He's like, he starts cutting on me, right? And I'm like, ah, thanks, coach, right? So what I'm trying to say is that, like, in 2 Commando, there were people who were beaking me, but I'm like, as long as they're still calling me down, I'm doing their right, doing yeah. the right thing. Yeah. And when they start liking me, then I got to question myself. Yeah, I agree, man. I, I agree. The I, I've my throughout my entire military career, uh, as I said, I meeting the standard was never enough for me. I was always pushing my own pace. And so I, it, I got in trouble for sure, but I got in trouble for doing things wrong, you know, chirping too much and all kinds of stuff. But I also got myself in trouble by being too good at things. Yep. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was like, rare at the start but i started getting pretty good at some things and you know that would rub people the wrong way who'd been in the game 10 years and i was only in the game uh, I, w- I was in two commando before i'd finished my sec- second year of military so that's awesome you know, I, was a, I was a fast mover man yeah. and it wasn't because i was trying to i wasn't trying to climb the ranks or climb a career i didn't even know what trajectory i was on really at that time I was just freaking smashing. And so that, yeah. that that just got me places. And where it got me was in trouble sometimes because the um the um maybe the ego of some folks at the time just didn't like the idea that I was pushing the pace the way I was, and they weren't pushing the pace. And you know that we sometimes those conversations were had over a beer and in the back of the back of the beer hall at the end of the night kind of thing just to kind of sort out the the nonsense the i'm, I'm kind of you chirp and you've chirped too much put your beer down let's go sort it out sometimes that's what i had to rely on so that maybe that's too direct maybe that's too concise maybe that's too to the point but sometimes cracking someone upside the head to get them to stop chirping will stop them chirping and and i did it and i did it Because that's what I thought was right at the time. Because that's kind of what I was taught at the time. Hmm. You got to remember that, like in the mid 80s, at least the the commando that I was in, if you chirp too much, you're going to get it upside the head. It was kind of expected. And so um, everyone kind of kept everyone honest to a degree, I would say. Yeah. No, I don't think what you do is too much. I, I, I admire that. And I wish, looking back, I wish I'd done more of that. I didn't, I didn't stand up for myself, right? I just thought if I kept my head down and, and did my thing, but, but that didn't always work with some people. I think you were speaking to people in a language they understood. That's right. Which was, a, which was a left and a right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. What was your, your path toward, um, 
JTF. So how do you go from Commando into this? Like, what is the the, the trajectory there? Mm, so I was uh, so I left uh, the Commando in '89 as a Pathfinder, and uh, you know, I at that time I was uh, I was an unarmed combat instructor, and I'd done some uh, teaching, kind of like a whatever a national level or whatever. So I'd done some things, and then I got posted back to three PPCLI as uh, uh, as a master corporal. And within short order, I found myself getting promoted to sergeant, which I could not believe. I, I, I was like looking around the corner, like, who is the idiot that thought I should be promoted? <laughs> In fact, I would go one step further and say, I kind of fought the promotion. I didn't want it. Yeah, I thought I was too young. And more to the point, I did not like the idea that I was going to be leaving my troops, as I thought at the time. Because there is an important distinction between junior NCO and senior NCO. Once you become a sergeant and you're now a senior NCO, at the, at the time that I got promoted uh, in 1990, there was a massive dividing line between those two categories. And as it was explained to me in no uncertain terms, Sergeant Taylor, move your gear out of the junior NCO shacks and move your gear over to the senior NCO quarters. And I looked at the uh, company sergeant major and said, ah, I want to stay with the troops. Oh, that's not an option. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. it there was a phase of my young sergeant career where I had to figure out what side of the line I was on because I didn't like the the I didn't like the side game. Yeah. I just wanted to do my best as a young sergeant while not leaving behind, as I thought in my head, the junior ranks that I'd worked so closely with and felt so close to and responsible for. So there was a period when I got to the PP that I thought, oh, man, I, I'm not ready for this. But as is the way, you know, the military will put enough challenges in front of you. They'll never stop. So you've got to fix them. You've got to face them. You've got to work through them. That's what I did. And next thing you know, I was uh, on to... Uh, uh, my next, uh, I guess, trajectory, which was sniper course. Okay. And so the Army sniper course is, I would say, freaking hard. Uh, when I did mine, uh, it was it was the first time that I'd ever failed so many times in a row. I was not used <laughs> to failing. If, if I target locked my eyes on something and thought, I'm going to freaking crack that out of the park, I usually had really good success rates. Showing up to the Army Sniper course, I, I have already stated that I was an excellent shot. I'll, I'll own that. But uh, what I wasn't used to was failing constantly, constantly, back to back to back to back. And not just failing like, eh, big deal, I failed. That's not the way I think. But these were failures that were like consequential, where the failure was oh my goodness, like, am I ever going to be, are they going to let me stay on the course? Yeah. And that's, it was back then. You didn't get too many strikes until you were bounced out. So there was a lot of pressure on the Army Sniper course when you were on it to make no mistakes, even though you were going to make all the mistakes. And that if you were there at the end of the course, man, it's not that you were something special. It's just that you'd figured out a way to work through the massive failure rates. Yeah. Yeah. All I, all I learned by the end of, of sniper course is a vague glimpse of how much I had to learn. I'd expanded my circle of ignorance, so I now understood 
my inadequacies. That's that like, dude, like I'm right there with you. Like I packed, I legitimately packed my kit twice, put all my stuff in the boxes and the bags ready to go home twice before performance checks on that course. And it, it's, <laughs> yeah. you guys, you know, if you can't, if you don't embrace failure, you at least got to become numb to it on that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and it, it was the reason I raised that one up is because it was yet another important milestone in my uh, career trajectory. Because so many lessons learned from that course, not not how to be a sniper, which I learned, of course, that was, those aren't the lessons I'm talking about. The lessons of how to work through the things that we're talking in respect to failure. That's maybe the most important thing I learned in in my entire military existence yep. was on that course, how to deal with failures so often for a guy who wasn't used to failing. Yeah. And so once my army sniper course was done, uh, back to the battalion, uh, doing the normal stuff, running a platoon and all of that. And then, uh, a memo went out forces wide. It was the memo for, uh, joint task force two. And, uh, the memo was pretty vague. The, the unit didn't even have a name at the time, as far as I knew. And so it was just basically top secret. If you feel that you've got the parts, sign here, come and give us a try. Now I'm paraphrasing. And so I read that memo just outside of my commanding officer's uh, uh, office. And I thought, ooh, I want some of that. But then I had to convince uh, leadership that I wanted to go uh, and give it a try. And uh, so that's that wasn't easy at the time. And here's why. Because the regular army had already gone through a cycle of trying to understand how to send men to the Canadian Airborne Regiment. Should we send really good men? Should we send our problem men? Should we send the guys that are going to go to jail anyway to the commando? Or should we send like the top of the uh, 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 cream of the crop? The regular army was still trying to figure out how to play well with the Canadian Airborne Regiment who to send, and who not to. And I watched the iteration in the commando of really good guys coming in, really bad guys coming in, really good guys coming in, and all of the stuff. Mm, And I'm not suggesting that the bad guys, for lack of a better term, sucked terribly. Like, they were good soldiers. It's just that they weren't the level of soldiers or the standard that the Canadian Airborne Regiment expected. So there was some real kind of I like to think of that phase of the military as empire building or empire protecting. So is at this time, is airborne kind of the, like in the Canadian military, airborne is the top, uh, I guess, top of the line, like our best soldiers? 100% in my mind. Uh, and, and to this day, I think some of them still are. Like some of yeah. the best soldiers I ever met are soldiers that were in the Canadian airborne regiment. Some of them. And I, of course, I know some other good soldiers in other yeah. units as well, but uh, yeah. I felt that the Canadian Airborne Regiment at the time was the best representation of what should have been special operations. So at this time, there is no special operations at all in the Canadian military? It wasn't even a twinkle in anyone's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, the special operations at the time was you were, a, you were a pathfinder and you were the tip of the spear. And if you weren't a pathfinder, then you were in pathfinder platoon. And if you weren't in Pathfinder Platoon, then you're in the commando. And if you weren't in the commando, and as it trickled down, there was, whether it's right or wrong, there was an understanding that the Canadian Airborne Regiment was best in the game. And if you wanted to be the best in the best of the game, you had to pursue upwards 
towards becoming, as I felt at the time, the tip of the spear within the regular army. It was the freaking Pathfinder platoon. To his Bishop's point, when that memo went out and the, the first right, what Sean refers to as plank owners, that means that they were, were there on day one. They were the first crop of, of operators to go into JTF2. We were, we were full strength at that time in Pathfinder platoon. We had 35 uh, men um, and one officer, sorry, two officers. Uh, of that 35, 18 of them went to uh, went to JTF2 in the first draft or two. We lost half of our platoon. It was our better half, 100%. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it was a problem. And, um, you know, the, the I'm glad you reinforced that, Ben, because the point I was going to try to make is I was a keener, as the old saying uh, used to get thrown around. If you're a keener, you were, you were keen to do your job well. And uh, I was a keener. And so s- some keeners were, were um, encouraged and some keeners were not encouraged to go and do keener things. And so I was at a phase in my career where I'd been a keener long enough that uh, I was kind of being identified already at that time. I had turned down a um, the uh, opportunity, we'll call it, or the recommendation that I uh, enter into officer cadet uh, training trajectory. So someone had okay. already tried to make me an Jeez. officer, and I'd said, no, thanks. I, I like working with the troops, so uh, that's a no-go. And then when I uh, saw this memo, uh, threw my name in the hat, at the time, we didn't know anything about selection. I didn't know whether you had to levitate or whether you had to swim or whether <laughs> you had to, how fast do you have to run? Is there chin-ups involved? We knew nothing. So I entered into that on day one with a complete blank slate, getting my ass whooped, not, not even knowing what was going on, but just doing my best. Now, when I came back from that selection course, then, of course, the uh, natural uh, process was to then enter into uh, 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 the next phase, which was to become an assaulter, special operations assaulter, which you could then, if you passed all of that phase, you, you would go under uh, observation for about a half a year, and then you'd get badged as an operator. Is that like observations like probation, essentially? Yeah, you could call it probation, okay. for lack of a better term, for sure. One thing I wanted to ask too is just before we get further into that story, though, is what was kind of the um, the impetus? Like, what's what's making them all of a sudden go, "Oh, hey, we need this now"? And where was JTF one? <laughs> Why two? Where did that come from? Yeah. So the uh, the impetus was because at the time, as I understand it, in 1992, the RCMP Special Emergency Response Team, or CERT, as it was known and still is known, uh, has got a storied history. Uh, they were our national asset at the time. And so based on budgeting at the time and based on their ability to perform at an international level, we'll call it, or the various roles that were starting to be better understood as future needs, because the world was changing at that time. Globalization and everything, yeah. yeah. All of it. It was starting, if anyone was paying attention, the world was starting to change. And so beyond the budgeting aspects, uh, the RCMP, as it turns out, was a little bit more expensive than uh, Sean as a warrant officer making five bucks an hour, uh, <laughs> straight up five bucks an hour. Uh, the, uh, the budgeting was different. And so for budgetary reasons and for capability reasons for the future, 
the thought process was, well, let's hand this responsibility off to the military. So okay. in two, we went through this process where the RCMP cert, uh, were, I, I went through selection under the gun of the RCMP cert members. So it was based on their program. Correct. Their pro- okay. And their program was based on, I'll loosely infer, it may or may not have been uh, based on the British SAS slash, et cetera, slash, it's none of your all business unless you go do selection. And yeah. so um, <laughs> all of that stuff was already well in place before uh, Sean showed up. And it was a very structured process that uh, introduced all kinds of challenges and all kinds of uh, interesting uh, uh, ways to shine the spotlight on truly what a person is. And so I went through that uh, week-long process back to the battalion and then uh, as, a, as, a, um, as a young sergeant again. And then uh, the next phase was, okay, you've been accepted onto uh, operational training. So at that point where I was given the offer to go into something that none of us knew anything about because it didn't even exist at that point, uh, I was left with the choice of, well, do I go? Well, of course I'm going to go because it's right up my alley. I mean, if someone tells me that you're going to do stuff that we can't explain to you that's insanely hard, it's going to be mega rad. I'm already in <laughs> mind, you know what I mean? So, um, but then that didn't work for the regular military, the green army, as it were, because I was about to bounce into something that nobody really understood, but I was bouncing as a keener, as a guy who had a body of work that someone at the senior leadership either respected or could rely on and wanted me to stay. And so for the second time in my career, I was offered by my commanding officer the opportunity to enter into the officer uh, training uh, trajectory, to which I politely said, sir, I really appreciate that offer, but thanks, no thanks, I am not going to do that. I'm heading off into the unknown, if you don't mind. And so uh, my commanding officer at the time, his name was uh, Pete Canward, who I have massive respect for. Uh, and so uh, I, I, as a young troop, uh, as a young soldier in uh, 1PP, I was uh, a Pete Kenward signaller when he was a young major, and wow. then et cetera, et cetera. So Pete and I ended up working side by side in the PPCLI, in the commando, and uh, I had uh, I was his freaking signaller in Cyprus uh, for uh, nearly the whole tour just because I got myself in trouble and then I got punished to go be a signaler. And as it turns out, it was one of the freaking best things that awesome. ever could have happened to me. Because, I mean, if you're standing next to a guy like Pete Kenward, guess what? If you keep an open mind, you're going to become a way better soldier. And so I said to uh, uh, my CEO at the time again, Pete Kenward, uh, sir, this is this is me. This is where I'm going. And uh, I'm not interested in being an officer. So off I went to JTF2 and never looked back. And you, uh, like, so you put out quite a bit of social media on this now, like some of your photos from back then. Um, without uh, obviously giving up some national secrets or anything, can you talk a bit about, like, places you've been or, or like, is JTF2 really involved in uh, the whole scheme of the world like you hear about all the navy seals everywhere and all these other people going out and they're all telling their their stories and have all the books and movies you don't hear about jtf2 mm. <laughs> so and maybe that's again that's along the lines of like what we've talked about before ben where 
Canadians are just uh, seem a little more reserved, um, not so uh, maybe in your face with the stories. But we also don't have Hollywood throwing you know millions of dollars at people that to give their stories and stuff. So can you talk a bit about uh, just maybe some of the stuff you've taken part in or where you've been uh, uh, as part of that unit? I sure can. And and so you're right. I am making a effort to put out uh, some content that refers to that period of my military career in order to uh, achieve two things. One is, I'm my, and my primary uh, reason is to encourage other young men to engage in that trajectory. Just like yeah. I wish someone would have encouraged me. I mean, uh, the first encouragement or the first mentor or the first guiding force that I identified was Ken Murphy. And literally, Ken Murphy is, I mean, one of the longest standing members in the SOF community, I would say now. Uh, certainly a, a very storied career. And I still think highly of uh, Ken. And so uh, it's my responsibility, I feel now, as best as I can, to encourage or inspire other young men to step into that trajectory of difficulty in order to serve their country in that unique capacity. The second thing I'm trying to do uh, beyond inspiring uh, someone to enter into that is just advise general Canadians, the average Canadian citizen, of some of the things that are going on within our military at that level. Now, I'm not privy to what's going on on the teams nowadays. I've been out of that game for a long time. Yeah. But I understand having gone through the process, I understand having uh, instructed on several selections and, and uh, the various phases and, and uh, working there, of course, for a period of time. I do understand generally what the job entails and what kind of a man is required and the importance of that role. So I'm trying to impart that out to the general community, as it were, without saying too much. And it's tricky. So you started off, can you speak about, you know, but don't speak about anything you can't. I still don't know what that is and what that isn't. Yeah. I'm still going to walk a careful line between trying to inspire and inform Canadians that the within our Canadian Armed Forces, there are people who are doing things that you're unaware of that are amazing on your behalf. But I don't have any guiding structure. There's nobody who calls me up every morning and says, so what are you going to talk about today, Sean? I've never received that call. And so I'm, 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 I always defer to, should I say that? And if that, that's my first thought, it never gets said. So uh, I'm just trying to walk a careful line. I'm going to literally clip this part out. And then next time somebody says something like about stuff I'm trying to put online uh, through the podcast or even posts, uh, this is exactly what I was trying to describe to somebody just the other day. Some questions came up about a post I put out and I said, uh, this is something that's missing in even policing. Like just now it, it, recruiting is the smiling face with the tie and the forge cap and they're super nice stuff. I was like, why don't you put out a picture someone who literally is like covered in fire smoke and it's like them dragging a person who doesn't want to get out of the building out of the building um or like i put up a picture of a uh one of the rifles that we took from somebody and there was a bit of questions over like that post uh which i won't get into on here but um sure. it's just you know it is a hundred percent it's finding finding the line um 
I think a lot of it too, at least in my case, uh, I, I don't know who you would have to answer to, but um, finding those lines, but also letting those people know who are watching those lines, like this is my clear, like my clear intention. Uh, I, if there's an issue, like talk to me directly. Uh, I have no problem changing things, right? But um, yeah, I like the way you said it. So I got to steal that and just play it for people. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, I, I will also, I, I'm obligated to add this piece as well. Uh, because again, it's a failure. So I, I'll own it and, and I learn lessons from these things. So in the past, in my social media, I've screwed it up. I mean, I've not screwed <laughs> so bad that I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to hide in a cave for the rest of my life. Just, and it's not that I've spoken too openly about anything in respect to JTF2. But I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to do social media well. I'm still a bit of a noob at social media. So for sure, I'm making mistakes on the regular. But my guiding principle is always to say less rather than say more, even though in my nature, yeah. I, I have lots of things to say, I suppose. But I try to hold some of that back. Yeah, yeah, I know, 100%. One thing, uh, I want to give you some time here just to talk about all the other things that you have done. So can you tell us about, uh, uh, if we can fit this in, leaving the service? So when you retire and what, when, when did that decision kind of come to you and, um, and the reasons why? Right. So I was about 13 years into my career. I was a warrant officer. Uh, I got promoted to warrant officer while I was on the teams. Uh, I had a number of roles and responsibilities. I, I was uh, I was involved in uh, some new initiatives that were quite important, and it's not that everyone can be replaced. So it's not that I was irreplaceable. That would be laughable. But I was playing some key parts there, uh, not so important again that I couldn't be replaced, but not that easy to replace, as it were. And so... Um, it's a, it's a, it was a difficult time for me because there was a number of things that were going on in my life, and there was a number of things that were pulling me in different directions. And I, and and one of my friends on the teams had just gone through a hard time, and 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 uh, he said he didn't know how he was going to deal with it. And I just looked him in the eye and said, "Don't you worry, I'm with you. We'll bounce together." And so uh, when we both bounced out of the teams uh, uh, that morning, uh, I was fully dressed in my ninja black and. And team warrant officering, and then uh, by noon that day, uh, I was jumping into my car and driving for six hours down to the Ontario Police College as a as a veteran. Uh, and I I didn't even think of myself as a veteran. In fact, the word veteran wasn't even a word back then. I mean, you, it just wasn't you're a veteran. Yeah. I I just thought of myself. Wow, this morning I was a, a ninja, and then this afternoon I'm a greasy civvy. What the heck? And so <laughs> there, there was no, at that time, uh, it was an interesting uh, period in the uh, unit's uh, history, I suppose, or within the military as a whole, because JTF-2 existed in, we'll call it the little black box, and then the regular army operated in the big green box. And those two things weren't connected. And so when I left the teams, the regular army didn't even know who I was. And so all of that usual paperwork that occurs, all of those usual briefings, all of those, hey, listen, mm -hmm. this is how things are going to play out. We'll call it a transition. First time I heard transition was in the news a few years ago, uh, and it was about uh, gender. Uh, there is no transition word when I was in the military. And so uh, 
it was a bit of a problem uh, for me, as it turns out, because as part of that paperwork, uh, there's uh, there's paperwork that you should be doing for Veterans Affairs Canada, uh, where you understand all of your injuries that you've gotten. I got about 20 pages of them and uh, all of the things that they can do for you when you're transitioning your education, your vocation, your this, your that, all of the supporting infrastructures. I only learned about Veterans Affairs Canada like three years ago. Oh, really? So, so all those years that I could have been getting um, uh, treatment uh, for my injuries or uh, some yeah. sort of support, or as it turns out, uh, I, I these these are all new things to me. But there's a thing called uh, income replacement benefit uh, for when you get out of the military. There's I'm not going to list all of the things that I now have access to, but I only gained access to them through someone saying, "Why don't you just talk to Veterans Affairs? What do you mean? What do they do?" Yeah, and so. That transition at that time was quite a bit different, I would say, than uh, a JTF2 operator today, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. It's just funny how, like, I want to say maybe in the last 10, maybe 20 years, all this stuff kind of just has all of a sudden happened. And, like, there's everyone's about supports and um, helping out when people are leaving a job. But before that, it was like, I don't know, just non-existent. Non-existent. Or they never advertised it. Yeah. Zero. And oh. and and so uh, you know, I had to cart my own way. I mean, literally solo journey. And so when I was at the Ontario Police College, I I, I didn't last there quite a year because it was like going from a million miles an hour to three miles an hour. And then that three miles an hour wasn't enough. So I had to bounce. And then I found myself standing on the sidewalk of uh, Ottawa thinking, well, now what? And there's nobody around me that I could talk to. It's not like I could say, hey, you know, guess what I used to do? Do you got any pro tips? And so I was just walking through Ottawa, scratching my head, wondering what's next. And quite by accident, uh, quite by coincidence, and I'm not going to turn it into a long story, but I just saw a group of people standing out front of a building. I walked over. I felt compelled to walk over and see what was up. And I looked at them and I thought, huh. And I walked right past them, got on an elevator, went up. Uh, a few floors. And then next thing I know, I was standing in a computer engineering school asking, what do you guys do here? The owner came out and said, are you interested? I said, interested in what? I don't even know what you do. He said, computer system engineering or computer program. Have you ever done them? And I said, no. He said, uh, well, come on into my office. Let's talk. We talked for about five or 10 minutes. His name was Ben, owned the place. And uh, at the end of it, uh, he said, I don't know what it is about you, but I feel that you could be successful in this. Are you interested? And I said, you tell me what I got to do, not freaking smash. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, well, uh, come back here on Monday. It was a Friday. Come back and uh, you'll write a programming test. And I said, on what? Like, what's programming? And he said, you'll have to learn about C plus or C plus plus. And I said, uh, okay, sure. I'll see you on Monday. And so from there, I walked down to the Ottawa Public Library walked right up to the librarians and said, I need to program. Teach me how to program this weekend. What books do I need? And uh, she took me over to a section. And I said, how many books can I take out? She said, 10. And I said, give me 10 books that are going to teach me how to be a programmer this weekend. So she did. So I walked back to my place with a stack of books, sat down, didn't sleep for the weekend, just hammered because that's what I was taught to do. And I wrote the test. Now, I'm not going to say it was an amazing score. But it was passable. More importantly, what it demonstrated to the ownership of the school was I was in the game. Yeah. 
But you did all that in a weekend. <laughs> I did it in a weekend. And so, um, you know, I went through, became a computer system engineer. And when I was finished the program, this is a funny little side note. Two weeks before the program finished, uh, the, our head instructor quit. And so our class was left without an instructor. So the owners of the school uh, walked up on me and said, hey, Sean, you've, uh, you've obviously done really well in this program. Uh, and you taught when you were in the military, didn't you? I said, yeah, I've taught a few things. And they said, well, would you mind just teaching till the end of today? And we'll have another instructor for you uh, by tomorrow for your class. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll try to cover it off day after day after day. The same line. At the end of the course, I was still teaching and uh, put the class through the, all of the tests and all of the stuff and made a bunch of people successful over that limited period of time. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, you know, I'm done. Uh, see you later. And they said, how do you feel about maybe just teaching another course? We haven't found a head instructor yet. Could you just maybe cover us off for a few days? Well, that turned into almost three years. Wow. And so <laughs> I, was, I was teaching computer system engineering from nine till five. And then they convinced me that the night instructor who'd quit, maybe I could cover that off for a day or two. So then I was teaching from six till 10. Holy. And, and <laughs> when I was doing that, I'd go back to my apartment in Ottawa and uh, I'd hop on the internet as I was learning more myself and I'd be on forums trying to learn. And it was very early day of forums. And people would start sending me questions like, uh, hey, if this, then that, and I'd answer it. And, and all of a sudden, I was like giving answers to people in the United States and Canada and India and all sorts of countries. <laughs> and uh, I guess my name got out there on a, uh, on a publishing uh, firm called uh, Singress uh, with Macmillan Publishing. They contacted me and said, hey, would you write a book on uh, computer system engineering, uh, security, security protocols, and yada, yada, yada. I was like, no, I'm busy. And so... Uh, <laughs> I kept turning them down, and then eventually they convinced me that I would be a technical editor on the book. Really minor part. You won't have to work too hard. You've just got to keep an eye on things. Okay, I can help you out. If it helps others, I'll help. And so, uh, to make a very long story short, the people who were writing the content weren't very good at it. Therefore, about halfway through the book, I scrapped the entire thing and wrote it from scratch myself. And so, uh, what that meant to anyone who's listening is, I was teaching from nine till five, that then turned to nine till 10, that then turned from nine until about three o'clock in the morning to write. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, um, it, for me, I suppose the lesson that I would like to hand out there to everyone is it's okay to engage with things with passion and it's okay to want to help your fellow man. But at a certain point, you've got to realize your limitations, to which I rarely do. And so by the time I'd finished the book, I said to the ownership, hey, listen, you're going to have to find a new head instructor to run all of my classes and do all of these things because I'm burned out. I'm done. I am going to go on to the next thing, whatever that means. Now, they tried lots of ways to convince me otherwise, but it didn't work. Yeah. And so that led to me bouncing overseas and doing a private uh, security uh, consulting. Well, one thing I want to make sure you uh, get a chance to talk about the collective. So before we go, can sure. you tell me, how did this come up, this idea? Uh, Chance touched on a little bit when we were talking to him, and uh, we got like his version. But um, so you guys do kind of two roles there. So can you talk about the collective and, and what you do with it? 
well, I don't know what I do anymore. Uh, maybe sometimes <laughs> not enough. <laughs> um, so how, how it kind of started was, um, and this is an interesting coincidence because I know that you're putting this out for kind of that Remembrance Day period of time. So it would have been last year, pre-Remembrance Day last year, that, uh, I don't know, I sat down with my coffee and I thought, what is it about Remembrance Day that is kind of bugging me? Mm. And, and what it was, because I was listening to friends over the years, and, and Remembrance Day had kind of fallen into this pattern of the usual stuff. You get up, you stand at the cenotaph, you get really cold, and then from the cenotaph, you go to the, uh, you go to the uh, Legion, you have a pint, and then you nod at everyone, you walk home, and that's it for the year. And, and I'm generalizing, and I'm making it super simple, yeah. doing that to make a point. Because I'd felt that maybe for a few years, as Canadians, or certainly me as a veteran, I'd lost sense of what it was supposed to mean, what we were supposed to be there. We weren't supposed to be complaining about how cold it was at the Cenotaph. We were supposed to be thinking about what it means to me, yeah. what it means to the guy standing next to me. What does this all mean? And so I wasn't satisfied with what the regular pattern was. And so because I'm an out-of-the-box thinker and because I like to do pattern interrupts, I just thought, I want to shake it up a little bit and see what comes of it. I want to see if anything good can come of this. And so um, I jumped on my, my, my phone and I kind of stood next to the cenotaph here in Roslyn and I started chirping about, no, I just uh, want to challenge everyone out there, my friends and uh, fellow veterans who, uh, as Remembrance Day approaches, I'd just love to hear from everybody across Canada what their thoughts on their personal feelings of what Remembrance Day means to them. And uh, it just so happened that there was a guy walking down the sidewalk here in Veteran, or sorry, in Roslyn, and he's a veteran. I said, hey, you, buddy, come on over here. And I pulled him and I said, give me your thoughts on, and I just put the camera right in his face. And fortunately enough, he knows my ways. He knows what I'm like. And he, and, and he was good enough to give me his thoughts. And as far as I was concerned, that video was freaking awesome. So I thought, I'm just going to push this out and see if anything comes of it. Yeah. And so... As I experienced anyway, certainly I felt that it, it was helpful. Like there was a number of veterans, like a lot of veterans across Canada that were starting to put up their videos. And it kind of became a little thing. And I thought that was really good. But by the end of it, I just wasn't satisfied, man. I wasn't, it's my way. I'm not satisfied. I'm a relentless pursuer of excellence. So the, the moment that I enter into a win state, we'll call it, I'm not interested in the win. I'm interested in passing through the win onto the next challenge. So I sat down and thought, how could I scale this up? How could I make life better for veterans? And so um, I talked to a couple of people and, and said, what would make a difference? And so I ended up talking with my buddy, uh, Tim Turner, uh, his wife. And, uh, and I, I said to listen, what, what, what could I do? And she said, you know what, Sean, you're a good storyteller. I said, maybe it's the Irish in me. And she said, well, I don't know what it is, but you're a good storyteller. And I think that if you just jump on every day and, and tell some stories, they don't have to be anything crazy, but just talk like a proper human being, like you're communicating with people and not try to solve all the world's problems, but try to encourage conversation. I think it might be okay for the veteran community. I said, okay, I'll engage in that. So as I did that more and more, I thought this, this cannot be a solo show because I'm, I'm, I was thinking of myself, I've got wicked imposter syndrome. I was thinking of myself ah. as the totally guy to be doing this. 
I've got nothing to say. I'm dumb. I suck. I'm a skinny, underperforming kid. What the heck am I even doing in front of a microphone? I hate this. But I engaged in the process because I thought it would be helpful. And too many people were telling me that you just got to keep going, Sean. Just keep going. So I did, uh, stubbornly. And then I thought, I got, I need help. So I reached out to, first guy I reached to was Seb Lavoie, who is a uh, yeah. retired RCMP member. And uh, I said, Seb, I, I got to do this thing. I don't know why. I'd like you to do it with me. Uh, let's go do a thing. And he said, I'm too busy with this right now. Can you just hold off uh, until uh, the end of the year? And I said, nope, I can't, I can't hold off. Because every day that goes by, there's another veteran who can't wait a day. I don't want to be the guy who thinks in his own head that just because I wanted to delay a day or two, someone kills themselves. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So I took on a massive sort of responsibility in my own mind. Not that anyone made me responsible. I just felt the weight of the moment and thought, not on my watch, man. Not on my watch. I ain't going to let that happen. So I'm going to kick something off. I don't know what it is, but it's going to get freaking kicked. Yeah. And so uh, next guy I reached out to was Chance and said, I don't know what it's going to look like, but here's my thoughts. I don't even know what it's called. I don't know where it'll go, but I'm going to smash and it's going to start on January 1st. And if I'm the only one standing there chirping, well, so be it. But are you in or are you out? And he said, I'm in. And so that's how it kicked off. Uh, with no plan in mind, I stepped in front of a microphone on January 1st and literally said words to the effect of, I've no idea what I'm doing. I don't have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> where this will go, but I can tell you what's going to happen. It's going to get my best, and it's going to get my best every single day this year, day after day until the end of the year, and then I'll figure the rest out. That's awesome. Wow. Well, and you guys have been up and running now, so like, and you got a ton of guests on, and you're talking to people from all walks of life. So, uh, uh, congrats on that. And uh, yeah, I, I was telling Chance on the last recording, like. I try and uh, tune in five minutes here, 10 minutes there, whenever I can get a, a little bit. Um, sometimes I'll be, uh, I have like a small break in the work we're doing at work and I can put it on when I'm in the cruiser. But uh, yeah, it's it's great work. It's inspirational stuff. Um, tons on uh, mental health and just being a better person. So yeah, keep at it. Um, Thanks, and, man. And yeah, we, uh, I really like the the, stuff that you put out the content so um i think that's a good place to wrap it because i gotta go pick up some uh kids so <laughs> i uh i want to say thanks so like it it's it's i think these stories are very important to get out there um and they they're they have huge meaning for people especially like you're saying you you know you want to speak to veterans and have people know hey other people have done these things they've gone through these experiences talk about it, uh, reach out, uh, get your stories out there. Big thing for this here is um, I'm trying to help people just kind of leave a legacy piece, right? Because I know a lot of people don't tell their stories. So if we can get you on audio uh, and the video part, I, I don't post yet. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully that's in the future. But uh, I'll send the audio to everybody. Um, and it's something that you can leave for your kids, for your family, uh, you know, uh, doing doing what we can to just help some people out. So, yeah, thanks for coming on this. Yeah, thanks. Uh, if you don't mind me, I'd just like to throw in a two cents. Yeah. I know you're wonderful. Go ahead. But, uh, as far as I'm concerned, some an initiative like the the collective 
today we had three guests on, uh, Coach Jake Doan, who's a strength and conditioning coach. We had uh, Sarah McMahon, who's a Olympian wrestler and a UFC uh, fighter and et cetera. If you're into any mixed martial arts, you know who Sarah McMahon is. And the other individual was uh, Dr. Gino, who is a human behavioral scientist uh, who works with special operators down in the United States. So we're having a, a really wide range of guests over there. But more importantly, uh, to your point on legacy, I ain't over on the collective trying to uh, leave a legacy for my kids to watch uh, these episodes, because quite frankly, they don't even know what I'm doing on podcasting. They have got zero interest. Uh, but uh, my legacy, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm using that term loosely, is I'm trying to help out the next generation. If, if I do any good in this yeah. world now in, on the collective podcast, it'll be two generations from now who will hopefully tune in and learn from their uh, wiser elders, as it were. That's good stuff. You got any final words there, Ben? Good, better, best, man. That's all we got. Just keep doing better. And make your better, best. Thanks for both of what you do. Both of you. Cheers, pal.